In Sao Paulo, Brazil, there is a, a very special <clears throat> ballet school. And at first glance, this school might look like any other ballet school. Students wear leotards, those shiny slippers that look eight sizes too long, and that signature slick back hairdo with the bun on top. And when it comes time for performances, the dancers appear very polished and very seasoned. But even with all of their training and professionalism and obvious skill, they take, when they take the stage, it's immediately apparent that there's something different about this school and something different about them. What is different is that all of these dancers are blind or deaf or mute or disabled in some other way. How do you teach a child who has never seen dancing, who's never seen an arabesque or a plie to mimic these moves? How does one help a deaf child keep time to the music? Those are the questions that this school, Bianchini's Association of Ballet and Arts for the Blind, has been asking and has somehow managed to figure out. Blind students put a hand on their instructor's arms or legs as they are led through dance positions and eventually entire routines so that they can feel out the proper movements and then reproduce them. Bianchini, the association's founder, is a, a former professional ballerina who became a physiotherapist, and she helps the students improve their their posture and their balance and their spatial sense through weekly lessons, all of which are free. But more than just learning to dance, the students gain a, a sense of a sense of belonging, of soaring past the limitations of their bodies as well as beyond people's perceptions of what it means to be disabled. These perceptions being deconstructed one dance at a time. Now stories like this resonate with something very deeply ingrained in the very thing that makes us human. For to be human is to long for beauty, to long for redemption especially when it's found in the midst of profound brokenness, of poverty, of setback, of disillusionment and disability. Now, to be honest, all of us have disabilities of some sort. All of us have limitations because we all share in the disability of mortality, that our abilities are finite, they're limited, that our bodies are in decline no matter how much we push against that realization. And we're heading, each of us, for death. There's something about that reality, the looming death that threatens all of us, that feels more than unfortunate, it feels more than even sad. It feels profoundly wrong. What Advent tells us, friends, is that it is wrong. It's deeply wrong. 
that disability, bodily decline, and death itself are far more than sad, but God says that they are intruders, that they are thieves, despoiling the world and the people that he loves. The first thing that we see in this passage is a sobering assessment of our world and ourselves, that there is a deep need for redemption. Now, we each have different strategies for avoiding the uncomfortable, don't we? We each have different strategies for avoiding or ignoring what is painful and distressing in our lives. We buy things. We avoid difficult people. We dive into our work. We plunge into distraction. And the thing about it is these strategies sometimes work. They work for a while and for some of us for quite some time. But then we get the intrusion of a pink slip. We encounter a, a terrible diagnosis. We, we lose a loved one. Or the entire world is turned upside down by a virus for which there is not yet a ready cure. And it's in these moments that we are, we are woken up to how twisted, how broken, how unpredictable, how full of suffering our world truly is. Paul turns a very sympathetic ear to us in this passage, especially to those who are confused by suffering. He knows from personal experience that there is a time that every Christian must come to when all of our diversion tactics no longer work and we are forced into a corner to really see ourselves, maybe for the first time ever, as we really are, and to see our world despoiled and to notice it and to be grieved because of it. And in these moments, we are told to cry, Abba, Father. Now, often and appropriately, this is a cry of exaltation. But in other times, it's a cry of deep distress and despair. Now, the context of these verses is counseling the church in Rome through suffering. And he is offering for them, and by extension to us, the fatherhood of God and our belonging to him as children as consolation in times of trouble. This isn't a script, at least in this context, for rapturous praise and joy, but it's a cry for relief. It's a prayer that, God, you would come and relieve our distress. In verse 16, Paul tells us that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And in your time of suffering, in our time of collective suffering, we are to remember that we are God's 
beloved children. This isn't teaching the Christian stiff upper lip. It's not trying to short circuit or undermine our grieving because grieving is a very biblical concept. We're not to take from this that while we're going through difficult circumstances, if we just love Jesus a little bit more, that we would be comforted and that we wouldn't notice all of the pain and the agony and the distress, that we would just have eyes for heaven and our joy would overcome our sadness. There's an element of truth to that, right? That, that waiting for us is eternal joy and it puts our grief in perspective, but it it never should undermine our grieving. It never should disallow the recognition that something deeply is wrong with us and with our world. This passage is, in fact, incredibly realistic and grounded. There's a cry and there's three deep groans in this passage, none of which are meant to short-circuit the pain. This word groan is actually a sign, a throbbing of pain. It's pain that we cannot ignore. It's pain that won't be trifled with. It's pain that can withstand the kind of easy theology that just longs to be whisked away, to be with Jesus in a cloud. It's a groaning that recognizes that we live in a physical embodied space. And at least for now, that relief seems far away. Those who are crying, those who are groaning, have come face to face to, with the reality that we live in a creation that is in bondage to decay. And either through our own tragedy or through simple observation of the empirical evidence that is now all around us, we recognize that there's something that's gone profoundly wrong with creation. We can recognize this when we look. We can recognize this when we attempt to be self-aware, when we attempt to be thoughtful, when we meditate upon not only the, the beautiful things in our world that are real and true and good, but also that which is so sadly broken. The person that arrives by ambulance in an ER to the ER recognizes this. The person that receives that terrible diagnosis certainly does. The person that gets an unexpected pink slip is confronted with the things that maybe we have all been trying to avoid, that we live in a creation in bondage. There's something you see that we realize that we cannot control. There's something in those moments that we find that despite all of our chasing of distractions, that there's a real lack in our lives, that there's a real emptiness, that there's a, a very deep powerlessness that we have, and that we begin to do business with the longings that we have for wholeness that we simply cannot meet on our own. We 
groan. Our hearts throb with longing inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That it's not just our spirit that will be redeemed, but our living, breathing, sweating bodies. We, like creation, are groaning for relief. Now, this relief is commonly under, understood, as I mentioned, to be the relief of heaven. That is, at the end of life in some otherworldly state that is very difficult to comprehend and therefore very difficult to pull down into our existential world. How do we take that which is so mysterious, that which we've never seen, and that which is in the future into our moment of struggle? Pop theology tells us that life is hard, but in the end, if you believe in Jesus, that he will whisk you away to a better spiritual place. And this we know is not entirely wrong, but it's certainly inadequate. It's certainly incomplete, especially in those moments where we know, like no other time, that we are in need, that we are out of control that our world can't offer us the resolution to our pain that we so desperately want. Paul, in contrast, the Apostle Paul, who is writing to the Romans, constantly talks about redemption of individual people in the context of the redemption of their bodies and in the context of the larger redemption of all things of the physical world and of physical bodies. The hope of Christianity is is not a whisking away, but it's that Jesus comes down, that he enters into our world and that he inhabits our bodies. It is not a rescue away to heaven, but it is a profound physical liberation. It is a remaking of the physical world and of our physical bodies. The creation itself, verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay. What a pregnant phrase that is, because that's what it feels like to be human, that we are in bondage to decay. But he says that we will be liberated from bondage to decay, and brought along with creation into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The scope of redemption must match, in other words, the scope of the fall. The scope of the solution must match the scope of the problem. And this could be very well Paul's meditation upon Genesis one through three. He's not thinking about the rest of the New Testament or the Gospels as as we often do, and rightly so, because these weren't available to him when he was writing. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about this long history of the Jewish people. He's thinking about the books that he has marinated his spirit in since birth, that is, the Hebrew Bible, 
starting with Genesis, where we have told we are told of this beautiful, remarkable, matchless, peerless creation that is also fallen and so terribly broken. We are told in Genesis 1 through 3 that something went wrong, terribly wrong, not only with our individual souls, but with all that God had made. And redemption, that which we look forward to, that's what, that which we long for, that which we want to see at least partially now, is God's way of setting all things to right. It is him bringing relief, friends, not only to groaning souls, but to a groaning creation. Our second child, Oliver, waited and waited and waited to be born, much to his mother's dismay. We had to actually schedule an induction about 10 days after his due date. Nick, our first child, came early, which is unusual. Oliver, our second child, waited and came very late, which has also been unusual. But on that day, at 5 a.m., 5 a.m., I knew that I wasn't going to be able to eat in the hospital, and who would want to eat that food anyway? And even though Katie couldn't eat at all because she was about to be um, hooked up to all of the IV and everything in the hospital, uh, I didn't think about her. I thought about my own uh, growling stomach, and I, I picked up a breakfast sandwich on our way to the hospital. Now, I'm not going to tell you where I stopped because that would be a little bit too much honesty. But let's just say that when they were hooking Katie up to IVs and monitors that I was over in the corner of the room uh, feasting on a very unhealthy breakfast. It was not my finest moment. Now, Nick, our firstborn, came into the world in very different circumstances. We lived at the time in a, in a rural area, and the hospital was about 40 minutes away. So we were ready to go on a minute's notice and also kind of amped up because we were first-time parents. We didn't know what to expect. But we had our bags packed. We had the car filled with gas. We had the number to the nurse on speed dial to tell them that, that we were coming. Now, when you know to the hour, almost, when a child is going to be born, you can stop and pick up breakfast. Now, you may not want to choose that because uh, that story will get told by your wife over and over for the rest of your marriage. But when you know the day, you can stop and get breakfast. But when you're waiting, when you're dealing with the distress of pregnancy, you don't simply make peace with the situation. You, you get ready. You prepare. You wonder and you hope and you make a plan and you pray and you ask Will this be the day? Is this going to be the day that I will meet this new person that I'm bringing into the world? Verse 22, Paul tells us, we know that the whole creation has been groaning 
as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Somehow, and this is mysterious to us, somehow it's not just humanity who experiences longing for an intrusion of grace, but creation itself is waiting to be redeemed. It is waiting for new birth. It is on pins and needles for its new creation. And it is God himself who takes on the role of an expectant parent who is making preparations to bring his child into a brand new world. What we're told in our suffering, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. What we're told in our suffering is that we are not alone. It is that we are loved and we are cherished and that there will be relief. God doesn't sit idly by as our world suffers through this deadly virus. He doesn't sit idly by in the midst of cultural and racial upheaval. He doesn't sit idly by as our bodies spiral into decay, as we're sick. He doesn't sit dispassionate while his children suffer, but he comes near. He draws near to care for us. He draws near first in the person of his son who comes and inhabits a physical body and experiences all of the pain and the sadness and the despair that we feel. So we know that we are not alone. But all the while, friends, he is planning for a new birth. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son, conformed to the image of Jesus, that one day we will more perfectly look like Jesus, inward and outward. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He, in this passage, is Jesus. But the birth that he's talking about It's not Jesus' Christmas birth, but it's his resurrection birth when he was raised again to open up a whole new world. And as firstborn, he doesn't simply occupy a special place of dignity, but he goes before us. He's the pioneer, as it were, clearing the path to the new world. And he's graciously fusing our future to his. Resurrection is the commencement of a whole new world. Our longings, you see, aren't misleading. We respond to them in inappropriate and unhealthy ways, but the longings themselves are healthy and good. They're not misleading. They aren't merely evolutionary adaptations, but they 
They point to something. We love stories of redemption because we were made to be redeemed. And there is reason, despite everything that is working against us, including sometimes ourselves, to have hope in the midst of death, to see beauty in a ruined world, not as some cruel joke, not as an intruder, but as a sign, as a sign that God has not left his world unattended. Broken bodies, dancing, it's more than beautiful. It's more than inspirational. These bodies, friends, these bodies dancing, they are prophetic. See, not only was Jesus born for you, but he died and he was resurrected for you. And so Paul is able to say in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, as we surely do, in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that that promise that we would share in your glory would become more real to us as it often seems so far off. We look around our world and we see remnants of what you pronounced as good. We see joy, we see delight, we see smiles on our loved ones' faces. We see hints of transcendence. But we live in a world where our longings for what is true and what is good and what is lasting often go unmet. Around the world and also inside our own hearts, there is division, there is distress, there is hunger, there is sickness. And we need relief. We need to be reminded that your coming to earth wasn't just to bring merely feelings of joy, an image of peace, peace, but, but lasting joy and true, real peace. We long for that. We want that for our world. We want that for ourselves. Would you meet us in these words that Paul gave to us so many centuries ago? And would you meet us in the table that we now approach? And would you enable us to believe that our hope for these things is not misplaced? Whether we were warmed by the closeness of family this Thanksgiving or whether we felt desperately alone. Whether we believe firmly in the larger story that Advent points to or whether we are entertaining significant doubts. Would you let your sense, let, let us sense your nearness and your longing to be in relationship to us? And like a, a parent who can't wait for their children to open up the presents that they have bought for them, 
Father, I pray that you would let us see your joy in waiting to reveal to us all that you have for us coming. And I pray that we would lean into that today, this week, in this Advent season. And we pray in your son's precious name, Jesus. Amen.